thing about them. They don't need power. Lights, heat, nothing. That's the advantage. That's what makes them stronger. We both have families. You want to protect yours, I want to protect mine. It's our only chance for peace. Are you aware? No! They are going to turn on you. Who was that? A good man like you. Caesar love humans more than apes. If you threaten his family, he will retaliate. Don't shoot! Don't you move! Should we shoot him? Maybe. Oh, hey, oh, oh. Hey, hey, hey. <laughs> oh, you want a drink? <laughs> Oh, all right. All right. Easy. Easy. All right. What are you doing? I'm saving the human race. Oh, my God. We made contact. Military. They're already on their way. Gigi, you have to go. Go where? This is my home. Be another way. War has already begun. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we place every movie up against the Jaws scale to see where it lands. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am once again joined by my friend Zaki Hassan. Welcome aboard, Zaki. Uh, thank you so much, Paul. Good to have you. Good to good to be back on the show. Better for you to mess on, up than me, my, my friend. Show, but, uh, <laughs> good to be on yours. Well, I'm, I'll, I'll be happy to be on yours whenever you want me to. But Hopefully, in the meantime, yeah, let's, let's make, I'm going to keep pulling you onto mine. Uh, so, you know, in our interaction about movies, I think we've talked about a lot of different things and a lot of different series in the last couple of years. But for whatever reason, we always land back on Planet of the Apes. And I think that's that's a sign of how much we both love these movies as, as a general rule. And we had a chance to discuss Rise of the Planet of the Apes a while back, which is posting on uh, the Two True Freaks Network as we record this, even though it's going to be way in the rearview mirror by the time this posts. Uh, and I thought we might as well follow up with the follow-up movie, Dawn, for the Planet, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes which was released in 2014. So we're not going back too far now. Uh, at some point, maybe we might look at some of the original five, but put that on the back burner for now. I, I'm looking forward to doing that as well. As many as well as the many other movies. You know, you're one of several guests that I've had on this show where I think I could create a list where we could just be permanent co-hosts and just do a new movie every time. Oh, that'd be great. <laughs> But because uh, I, I I do think our tastes overlap plenty between Planet of the Apes and Star Trek and Star Wars and and then then there's also the more serious fare. Uh, so I, I do I do think like I said we overlap a great deal. I think you're right. 
Planet of the Apes, and you know, we we talked about uh, this a little bit last time, so I don't want to go too far into it. But just to suffice to say, the original 1968 Planet of the Apes that is your favorite movie of all time. It is absolutely. And I think you know, we just take it from there, <laughs> and, yeah, right. and everybody's going to kind of understand where we're coming from. Because I think anybody who listens to the Two True Freaks Network on any kind of regular basis knows how much of a fan of these movies I am as well. Uh, you know, we on Back to the Bins, we've ha- actually had uh, Planet of the Apes Month. And, uh, you know, I did a commentary with Andrew Leyland about, uh, for uh, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, which is not one of the most highly regarded movies, despite my own personal affection for it. Uh, so I'm, I'm, know, I'm with you there. I'm with you. You know, I, th- I think uh, for all of its flaws, I think it, it is fascinating, as, just as much as it is flawed. Yeah, I would agree. And it, it's, you know, there is an element to that movie of just, you know, kind of dumb down your brain and relax and just enjoy the ride. Yeah. And and with that in mind, there there is a lot of battle for the Planet of the Apes in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Well, that, that was where I was going to go, actually. Uh, you know, we, we left off at the end of Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which would kind of parallel in some ways the end of Escape of the Planet of the Apes and most of conquest of the planet of the apes yeah and now now we're picking up from there and i think this as you say you know has has some elements of battle for the planet of the apes although i don't think i don't think we complete the story and i think that may be where we're going with war you have greater insight than me on that because you've already seen war yes and uh you know we're still on a media blackout on that one because we're a week away from that release and uh I won't be asking you to spoil, and to be honest with you, I wouldn't want you to spoil because I like to go into these movies fresh anyway. Yeah. So I, but I, I expect to see you know more more tie-ins to Battle for the Planet of the Apes. In fact, my thought process is more or less that as long as they keep this franchise going, that we're going to keep building on this same kind of ground, uh, and that the, you know this will be the foundation for where we're going to be because I don't think we ever want to get to the year when. Uh, I don't remember what the name of the ship is, but when the Colonel Taylor, the Icarus, thank you, for for the year that the Icarus lands uh, uh, back on on uh, on Earth and starts Colonel Taylor's uh, journey. Yeah, you know, I mean, I I think it's it's really interesting because because you hear that from a lot of people, like, oh, now they got to do you know when when the astronauts come, and I'm like, why do you want to do that? You've got two thousand years of story space available to you without ever needing to you know, touch toes with, with that, you know? And, and one thing I've always said is, is the original Planet of the Apes is already the best version of that story you're going to get. So anything other than that is by definition going to be the less good take on that. And whereas you can do 2,000 years worth of stories that have never been told, that don't have to compete with themselves in essence. So why not take advantage of that? That's what, that's what Fox has available to them with this revived apes franchise. So I hope I hope they don't step over their toes by, by trying to jump ahead to that, uh, especially when they don't need to. I, I would tend to agree with you that I do think it is the best version of that movie, and I do, do not think that they will improve upon it, uh, if no matter how much they try. I My take on remakes is the only time where I'm... Well, the times where I find it to be uh, acceptable is if the first movie was kind of... A good idea that failed for some reason and they want to take another swipe at it to see if they could do it the right way mm-hmm. or if it's something where the the technology has advanced to the point where now you can do things you couldn't do and 
I think the best example of that is maybe maybe like King Kong. Yeah, sure. You know, it's not that King Kong isn't a nearly perfect movie, the 1933 version, I think it is. You you know, the special effects are what they were of that time and that they could now do things that they couldn't do then. So I'm I'm okay with that type of update. And I just got into a conversation about this with one of my friends yesterday because he said, did you see that they're remaking The Beguiled? And mm. that goes against my theory on it because I don't know if you're familiar with the original Beguiled. I'm not. Starred star Clint Eastwood. It was made in 1971. Uh, he's an injured Civil War soldier who ends up in a girls' school and kind of plays mind games with them. I'll just kind of leave it that, at that simple point. Plays mind games with many of them. Uh, and now they're remaking it, and it was a real good psychological drama. A little right. bit of a thriller aspect, but mostly drama. I mean, I'm and hearing it, that the new one is, is pretty terrific as well. So Yeah, I'm, I'm just not seeing where you're going to improve on it. I, sure. I, just, feel, I just feel that there's, there's an element of uh, creative bankruptcy Unless they're going to take it to areas, that, I guess that would be the third area, the third uh, successful uh, remake field, is if you're going to take it to areas that the, the previous one just did not do and right. make it a, a, you know, a total reimagining as opposed to a remake. Yeah, and well, and, and to that, to the, the latter point that you just made, I mean, I, I point to remakes such as like The Manchurian Candidate, which I think uh, the Jonathan Demme version is very good. Uh, in my opinion, and I think it's good precisely because of the fact that it takes the foundation uh, of the original film, but it it spins it in a direction that's no less compelling and no less uh, you know substantial in its commentary. But it's doing something that's specific to its era. So the same way the original Manchurian Candidate is talking about uh, you know uh, fears of communism and things like that, which was pressing at that moment. The 2004 version is talking about fears of terrorism and and the media influence on that. And so you have these two versions of the same story that are both compelling, uh, that that ha- have a, a thread connecting them, but are still doing two very different things. So just having talked this out for a few minutes, we've added a third category to my uh, acceptable remake <laughs> criteria. And I, and I think that's fair. I, I, I would want to expand it to that. So I can't totally dismiss the new version of The Beguiled yet. Sure. But if it was a true remake as opposed to a reimagining, I think I'm going to say I've been there, done that, with one of my favorite actors already. Right, right. So we'll see you know, where, where I go with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you think. But we're not here to talk too much about The Beguiled <laughs> uh, right now. We're here to talk Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Now, this would be, in effect, what we're talking about, though, because... This is, we're, we're into the battle for the Planet of the Apes area, but we're in the reimagining as opposed to remake. Yes. And the plot of this one is pretty much as follows. Ten years after the pandemic of the deadly ALZ-113 virus, or simian flu, the worldwide human population has been drastically reduced, with only a few genetically immune to the virus. Apes with genetically enhanced intelligence caused by the same virus, have started to build a civilization of their own. Caesar is the chimpanzee leader of an ape colony in the Muir Woods near San Francisco. Caesar's son, Blue Eyes, and his friend Ash encounter a man named Carver in the woods, who panics and shoots Ash, wounding him. Carver's party, led by Malcolm, arrive while a number of apes join Blue Eyes and Ash. 
Caesar orders the humans to leave, and they flee to their community in San Francisco, centered around the Tower, a partially finished skyscraper. Prompted by Koba, a scarred bonobo who holds a grudge against humans for experimental mistreatment, Caesar brings an army of apes to the Tower. There he announces that while the apes do not want war, they will fight to defend their home. He demands that the humans stay in their territory. Malcolm convinces his fellow leader, Dreyfus, to give him time to take a small team to the forest to reconcile with the apes and gain access to the hydroelectric dam in their territory, which could provide long-term power to the city. Malcolm meets with Caesar, who allows the humans to work on the generator on the condition that they surrender their guns. As Malcolm, his wife Ellie, and son Alexander work, they bond with the apes. Mutual distrust of both sides gradually subsides until Caesar discovers a gun Carver had hidden and orders the humans to leave. He later allows the humans one extra day to work on the dam after Ellie uses medicine to save Caesar's wife Cornelia. Distrustful of the apes, Dreyfus arms his community using an armory. Maintaining his distrust of humans, Kova discovers the armory and later confronts Caesar, accusing him of loving humans more than the apes. In response, Caesar severely beats Kova, but refrains from killing him. Kova returns to the armory where he takes an assault rifle and kills two guards. Returning home, he secretly kills Carver. The generator is repaired, restoring power to the city. During the celebration, Kova sets fire to the ape's home. Then, unseen to anyone else, he shoots Caesar, who falls from the settlement's main tree. In the subsequent panic, Kova takes charge, implicating Carver in the shooting and convincing the apes to attack the humans. He leads them into San Francisco where they plunder the armory and charge the tower with many casualties. The apes breach the building and imprison the humans as Dreyfus flees underground. When Ash refuses Koba's orders to kill unarmed humans, citing Caesar's teachings, Koba kills Ash and imprisons any ape still loyal to Caesar. Malcolm's family finds Caesar, barely alive, and transport him to his former house in San Francisco. Caesar reveals that Koba shot him, realizing that apes can be as corrupt and violent as humans. When Malcolm sneaks into the settlement to find medical supplies for Caesar, he encounters Blue Eyes, who spares him before learning that his father is still alive. After reconciling with Caesar, Blue Eyes returns to the tower and frees the imprisoned humans and apes. Malcolm leads the apes into the tower where he finds Dreyfus. He learns that the return of electricity allowed Dreyfus's men to make radio contact with survivors at a military base who are now coming to fight the apes. Caesar confronts Koba at the top of the tower. As they fight, Dreyfus detonates C4 charges that destabilize the tower at the cost of his own life. Koba starts shooting at the apes, but Caesar tackles him off, off a ledge while clinging on to a metal girder. Koba is rejected as an ape by Caesar and is dropped to his death. Malcolm and Caesar acknowledge their friendship with Malcolm warning of the approaching human military. Caesar warns that the humans will never forgive the apes for their attack and convinces Malcolm to leave with his family. The film ends as Caesar stands before a kneeling mass of apes. So, so that's, that's the story of the movie. And what I, well, let me ask you, 
when did you first see this? Did you see this as a press release, or did you see it, you know, with a regular audience? I uh, my experience watching Dawn of the Planet of the Apes was pretty awesome. I was um, a guest at the global uh, world premiere with the cast and crew here in San Francisco. So um, I was invited to uh, the Palace of Fine Arts to see the movie, and then afterwards I was at the the cast and crew party. Uh, immediately after seeing the film so it was a surreal experience all around where I'm watching the movie and then immediately afterwards I'm chatting with Andy Serkis and uh, Gary Oldman you know that's that's awesome it was a very special experience for me something I'm going to cherish all my life especially as this kid who you know uh, 25 years ago I was in high school publishing this little Planet of the Apes fanzine that you know 50 people maybe read and then you know decades later i'm i'm there with the people who made a planet of the apes film it was uh something uh, amazing you know oh that that's uh, that sounds awesome (laughs) but uh you know as as we go through this if you can share any insight that any of them provided for you please please do that uh i saw this the weekend of its release you know in a regular theater uh with my son and I think we may have gone with some other people but I know it was me and my son that went to see it together and this is a movie where I felt I feel I can view this on two different levels because I saw it and I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed it mostly as an action adventure type movie and then watching it again in preparation to sit down to talk with you and watching it with more of a critic's eye which I try to do for this uh, I saw layers and depth to it that I didn't really even notice was there when I first viewed it. Uh, I have a tendency to just kind of submerge myself into a movie like it's a ride and let it take me along. Right. And if I'm not trying to be a little bit more uh, analytical about it, sometimes certain nuances skip by me. But. You know, having looked at this a little bit more closely, I really liked the way it was presented from both points of view. You know, the human point of view and the ape point of view. Right. And how neither, although there were bad guys in the movie, neither was presented as being the bad guy as they had in the original Planet of the Apes movies. Yes. Well, and and, I mean... I, I, honestly, I think I think the best of the apes films are the ones where you can sort of sympathize with the the antagonist. You know, I always point to Escape from the Planet of the Apes as you know the the character of Doctor Hasline, who is really vile by the end of the film. You still there's a kernel of you where you get where he's coming from, where in his mind he's being righteous. Well, I, I've, I've talked about that a lot on Back to the Bins where one of the most compelling type villains is the one where in his mind if you were writing his story he's the hero yeah and and you can say that about Hasline and Dr. Zayas yes absolutely and and that gives them a depth instead of just making them a mustache twirling you know uh, old you know old-time villain Uh, you know it gives them a depth that makes them more compelling and it makes the ride a little bit more compelling you know sometimes you want to have a movie where you're just rooting against the guy for the sake of rooting against him but the element of tragedy that you put in when you have a guy who's you know whose motivations are clear and and make sense to you 
even though you might make the decisions differently. And and you know, uh, you know, just to connect this back to um, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. I mean, Gary Oldman was, was one of the antagonistic figures in the film. I mean, there's a terrific moment in there where where the power comes back on and their their little enclave, and he sees the pictures of his family for what we assume is the first time in a long time, and he just starts weeping. Um, Which uh, I just, when I was watching it, I was listening to the commentary, I found out that really is his family. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and you got to think that that would make it easier as an actor to just kind of picture some sort of terrible thing that, you know, you hadn't seen these people in years and to, to try and give you that, that performance, you know, that motivation in your performance to, to make it real. Absolutely, yeah. And And that's the type of moment, by the way, that you could easily see uh, you know, a studio being like, you know, pacing, pacing, let's cut that out. And it, I think it goes to Matt Reeves' uh, sensibilities as a storyteller that he made sure to put that in because I, I, I truly feel like, uh, you know, if, if you do your job right with a movie like this, you're on both of their sides. You're on the human's side because you are a human, but you're also on the ape's side because you we have we as the audience have spent time, in essence, living with them. And so we know... Uh, that they are not bad, you know, and so so we're we as the audience members are are the the bridge between these two groups, and you know it, it the 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 title Planet of the Apes, that being the title brings an inevitability to it, and that's the ultimate tragedy in this whole series. It it doesn't matter how noble we think Caesar is, and it doesn't matter how good things seem, seem to be going. We know that. At some level, it has to end up with, you know, Chuck Heston running through a cornfield getting chased by gorillas, right? So we know that there can be no coming together. And that's the inherent tragedy of this franchise. Yeah, and and considering that they have that dark cloud over over the franchise, and when you look to, to these movies, most of them have kind of foreboding endings, if not out now. Yeah depressing endings like the right. world exploding uh they've done a wonderful job throughout of just making them enjoyable movies that are family friendly despite that yeah. uh but you know taking a look at the villains i think there's really three characters that you could say are the villain of the piece in this particular one you got the gary oldman character who kind of takes it too far and i don't think he he certainly doesn't have villainous motivations i think his characterization is more based on the fact that he kind of comes to the conclusion that it's us or them right and he's going to defend what he has that's right you have carver who is a more two-dimensional villain than him right. uh, who, who's unreasonable but i think we've all met hotheads like that in our lives and it's so, funny because he, he basically plays the exact same guy that he played on The Walking Dead, if you ever watched that show. <laughs> Just like mm-hmm. the the douchebag who who can't see past his own group. You know, so yeah. I feel like that. Uh, uh, Kirk Acevedo, I think is his name. He, he's kind of a typecast a little bit as, as that guy, the judgmental douchebag. If I remember correctly, and I could be off on this because it's several years back. If I remember correctly, he was on in the early seasons of the show Oz and he played a sympathetic character. Oh, is that right? Okay, I've never seen Oz. Oz, Oz is a very, uh, very graphic mo- uh, series, uh, at least as I recall it. You know, difficult to watch at some points just because of the level of violence. But, yeah, sure. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure, if I remember right, I'm pretty sure his character was sympathetic on that show. Uh, but he, you know, he he's of the three villains, he's the least compelling in my mind. 
just because, like I said, he's too much of a hothead. He's not his his motivations seem a little unreasonable. Right. You know, when he brings the gun into the camp after they're specifically told no weapons and the apes are letting them come and work on the on the dam. Right. The, there's there's no rational thought to that in my mind. Right. So it's it's very hard to defend his motivations. Koba I understand his motivations. I mean, he he is reprehensible in his own way. Yeah. Uh, but I understand his motivations having been tortured by the humans. Yeah. Oh, that's a great moment. He's like human work. Human work. You know, I mean, it's it's um he's he's Aldo in this film. I mean, if we if we're drawing mm-hmm. uh, a corollary. But I think unlike Aldo, it's far easier to understand where Koba is coming from because um Partially because we've seen him already, right? We saw him in the last film, and and uh, um, we've seen directly how he was mistreated by human beings, which is not something that we really got from the Aldo character. Yeah, and and he's one of the things about his character, though, is you see him spiraling, and you yeah. see where he's going, and even without the insight of seeing him go to the uh, the human camp and his interaction with the with those two. Uh, bumbling guards of the armory uh but even without that you could see he's spiraling and it's a little bit of either overconfidence or hubris or whatever on the part of caesar to not see it coming yeah and well and i think i think what we see is in essence you know for 10 years they they had no human contact and so through those 10 years caesar got to know the best part of coba right and and then once you know the that incident happens with with um, uh, Ash and and uh, Blue Eyes, and then the humans are reintroduced into this ecosystem that's already come to exist. It's like all of all of his trauma comes flooding back, right? It's 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 a, a PTSD in a way, you know, that Cobra mm-hmm. is suffering. Entirely understandably, by the way, because again, he he was used as a test subject, and we see the results of that based on how he looks. So, so to to the extent that we can see where he's coming from, I mean, it's clear as day. But yeah, I mean, the the, the spiraling is is I think I think again, it's one of those things where in in his mind he's completely justified. But we have the benefit of we know Malcolm and we know. Uh, you know Ellie, and we know Caesar, and we and, uh, and so we're like, no, no, he's wrong. But we have information that he, the character, doesn't. Yes, I, I agree with that. But my my perspective on that though is when they get to the point where Caesar has to give him the beat down at the dam. Oh, yeah. yeah. At that point, all he does is put out his hand. Caesar gives him the palm rub, and then yeah. it's like, okay, we're back to normal again. Caesar at that point should have seen. I got to keep a close eye on this guy, or I got to have right. somebody keep a close eye on on him for me. He that's, should not I mean, have had free reign at that point. And and you know, this is, it's one of those things where, you know, you 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 know, when you look at history and you look at all the little road, the forks in the road where history could have been changed. I mean, that's certainly that's the case for Caesar. We look at it from Caesar's point of view. He's he's advocating this, uh, if not pacifistic, this peaceful worldview, which is that apes will never kill apes right and so so it doesn't occur to him like he's he's just he's fundamentally unable to grasp the idea that any ape could cause another ape harm you know and so in that sense it's very similar to battle for the planet of the apes where you know there's a line in that film where um 
say McDonald, he's like, you know, I guess you could say they just joined the human race. Like, Caesar has to learn that. Yeah. There's tragic consequences for him not being able to know that. But it's just, that's not part of his awareness, this idea that apes could ever cause apes harm. Yeah, it's not, and that's a fundamental flaw in his thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and that's... And that, the tragedy. that's well, that's, I mean, and that ends up being his, his story arc is to learn that and then ultimately to accept the inevitability of the war. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, now, I don't mean to criticize him necessarily as an actor, mm-hmm. but I thought Jason Clark might have been slightly miscast in his role. Oh, interesting. Uh, I thought he did a good job with the material he had. And I, I do think he's he's a decent actor, but there's something that he he just did not have the chemistry with Andy Circus that in my mind, for them to have formed that bond that they form. I I just didn't feel that, and that's the only thing I'm basing the. You know, maybe overstatement of being miscast, hmm. uh, on that. But I, I just never felt that he didn't have that. Uh, I think Andy Circus as Caesar has this uh, just compelling nature about him. Uh, you know, he he is the alpha male, and he's portrayed that way. And and you you'd want to follow him. He is a born leader. Yeah. Uh, Jason Clark as Malcolm, right? He's Malcolm, right? I'm getting Malcolm, the names right. Yeah. 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 He 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 seems like a regular guy. He isn't the counterpart to Caesar. And well, that's what I think I, you needed. I, there. You know, I don't know. I don't know that he was intended to be. I mean, I, I think. I think. I think he's reflective of. He's the audience when you think about it, Malcolm. Right. Yeah, like, but we are. We're all just regular, right? And and so I think. I think the the idea is that, he what he represents. Like I. I mean, I don't know that I necessarily disagree with what you're saying about about the chemistry between them. But I think that's less a reflection of of Jason Clark necessarily than sort of the needs of the script where. Uh, to some extent, Malcolm has to be powerless in this dynamic, even in the sense that, in in the in the human, you know, enclave, he 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 doesn't have enough. He doesn't have political power to be able to to force a change politically, right? So all he has is, is whatever power of persuasion he has. So so there's there is a a, a, uh, a shift in dynamic in the sense that Caesar is the leader of his people. Malcolm is not the leader of his people. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so it's going to be imbalanced. I do think what does come across is that he's a decent person. I, I agree with that. Yeah. I think they would have been maybe better off if they had cast somebody who had some sort of a resemblance to, uh, what's his name? Uh, Franco. James Franco's character. James yeah, Franco. possibly. So, to just to create a situation where, you know, you could understand why Caesar would immediately bond with this guy. Hmm. Okay. Like I don't like I said I I didn't feel that chemistry between the two characters although that's the the dynamic that I think they wanted you to have that he sees him the way James Franco played a decent person who took right. care of him that he sees Malcolm as a very similar you know kindred spirit to that and that's why sure. he he takes to him. And there's and, that and great I, exchange where where he's watching the video of Franco and he says he's a good man like you and I I, I really like that moment by the way. Yes, I agree with you there too. 
and, and again, like I said, I don't think it's necessarily any any fault in Jason Clark and the way he pu- he played the role. In fact, there's points in it where I think he does really well. Yeah. Uh, in particular, just the physical challenge, uh, which was pointed out when I was watching it in the commentary, of scenes where the scene when he goes to request permission to work on the the dam, and he's being pushed around, yeah. and uh, it turns out he was he was all alone. Meanwhile, in the in the scene, he's surrounded by apes. Right. You know, that's all CGI. And right. having it pointed out to me, I was able to kind of see, okay, yeah, you can kind of see the seam there, and you could see where he's not really among these apes, which right. I never would have noticed if it hadn't been pointed out to me, to be to be fair. That's right. Uh, but the fact that he was, the, the reactions he was given on both levels, just his, his facial expression and his body, just, you know, being shoved around and everything, you know, very, very well done. Right. So I, I do want to give him credit as an actor, but that, that's why I was quicker to go with the idea of maybe miscast as opposed to, uh, you know, a, a fault to his performance. Sure. Then uh, we have uh, Kerry Russell, mostly as a supporting role. Yeah, she. I mean, I, I almost feel like she did this movie because Matt Reeves, you know, she has a history with him because of Felicity. And, uh, you know, he was able to wrangle her in. I mean, I I don't know that she has a substantial uh, part to play in the the offerings. I mean, it's nice to see her. I like Carrie Russell. I have a problem with her. But, uh, I I mean, I I think if if you're talking about a thankless role, I think hers is almost more thankless than, uh, uh, you know, than than, uh, Jason Clark's. Oh, I I absolutely think it's a a thankless role because she's, she's... Given the part to be kind of the glue that's holding, holding him together in many ways, giving him that sense of family, right, and allowing that to continue, you know, in in this horrible situation they find themselves in, uh, but not given a lot to work with to do that, and I think she does a fine job with what she has. It's to be honest, Paul. It's it's very similar to to Frida Pinto in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I mean, she's like she's the girl. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, she she has uh, she serves the exact same role in the narrative, both of them, and and both of them are basically absent in the in the climax. Well, and, and along the same lines, you have uh, was it Cody Smith McPhee who plays right. the son, and uh, he's he's basically given the same job as she has. Yeah, you know, just just to give that sense of family and that that something to fight for. That's exactly right. Yeah. But there's there's also some nice moments with uh, with him and uh, Maurice. Yeah, a little bonding that goes on. That's another one. You know, what you talked about uh, Gary Oldman's character and how they, uh, you know, they left in scenes where they might have pulled it out just to kind of pace it a little quicker or, or to uh, you know just cut down on the running time. I think those are scenes they also could have pulled out, and I think the film would be lesser for it. Yeah, and I I think Maurice is a character who. Um through the the you know progression of this trilogy is is really fascinating and and if if we're making a, a connection you know he's certainly the Virgil uh, to Andy Serkis's Caesar here you know where he's he's uh, the voice of reason you know and, and, and for for reasons that I can't explain and obviously I do not want you to react to this but for reasons I can't explain I fear for his character in War of the Planet War for the Planet of the Apes. And I do not want to see him go away. And isn't that uh, something? I mean, if nothing else, I mean, he he has uh, up through dawn. He says one word, 
and it's the most perfectly placed word where at the exact moment he says run yes to to the human characters and 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 yet we we form form such an attachment with him him and and rocket played by terry notary are characters who we've come to know and love and we have affection for which is an astounding achievement uh, for these films i mean above and beyond andy circus as caesar who who we can't help but but adore um i think i think um the the ape characters are, are a true achievement, you know. Yeah, Andy Circus, I am growing to appreciate more and more every time I see him. Oh yeah. You know, at first, you know, he he was, I think he was presented somewhat on, or he he was brought to fame a little unfairly, sure. because he was brought to fame just as the CGI guy. Right. And they they've discounted his acting ability throughout. You know, that was almost a byproduct or a secondary thing. But when you watch not only the physical movements, the facial expressions, which do make their way into the movie, you could see he's doing a hell of a job acting in this part. Uh, just just the little things he does when he, when he stands a certain way or when he looks a certain way, and like I said, the facial expressions. Especially when you factor in that a lot of the acting he's doing is without, you know, without actual speaking. Yeah. So it's I, I, it's it's well and you know i mean i think i think the whole terminology has shifted right it's gone from motion capture which is an inherently technical term to performance capture which is a much more accurate term to represent what's happening which is which is the totality of the actor's uh, performance is being uh, reinterpreted digitally i mean this i i i said after watching war that if fox is not putting Andy Serkis up for serious best actor consideration, then somebody's asleep at the switch because it seems like a no-brainer. Uh, when you look at everything uh, that he's accomplished from from that first film to now, I mean, it, it is an achievement. There's no doubt about it. I get the feeling he's going to be somebody who's not going to be appreciated in that way, but could find himself getting some sort of lifetime achievement award eventually. I could see something like that, yeah. I think that's yeah, or, that's more of a possibility than him getting Best Actor. Not that he doesn't deserve Best Actor, or it's certainly right. a nomination for Best Actor. Uh, but I I think, you know, I, I don't know if your views on it are, are the same as mine. But I think the Academy tends to be a little pretentious sometimes, and uh, yeah, is, this this is where I think this is going to fall. So I I I. I I mean, when, when it comes to science fiction and action movies in general, I think that they tend to turn their nose on them a little bit. But yeah. you know, that that said, uh, you know, we, we look at a, a, another Andy Serkis vehicle, and I thought the Lord of the Rings movie that actually won Best Picture was the weakest of the three, in my opinion. Yeah. But they gave it to it because they had to wait until the end. You couldn't give it to one of the other two, which I thought were both superior movies. Yeah, I, I think you know they were they were uh, awarding the achievement of, of the, the, the of the totality of what they did. So I think uh, that's uh, that's very comparable. So who else have we got here to look at? Well, we got Toby Kebbell, who does. Uh, unless I'm mistaken, he is. Uh, he's Koba, and he's great. He's Koba. He's, he's fantastic. I, you know, Toby Kebbell uh, gets a bum rap a little bit because he tends to be good in bad movies and and you know uh he he unfortunately uh had the task of playing dr doom in the the ghastly uh, fantastic four remake from a couple of years ago um mm. 
and and I think during the parts of the film where he's not, you know, wearing that that god awful get up, whatever whatever they thought Doctor Doom looked like in that film, uh, he's quite good. And I think um, he's also pretty good in the Ben Hur remake from last year, which was completely unnecessary and, and not a very good movie. Uh, I think I think uh, Koba is his best performance. You know, the the way he brings to bear the struggle just to speak, you know, when he says Caesar loves humans more than apes, it's you can feel the the pain of just trying to spit these words out like he 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 hasn't needed to talk before, but that's how furious he is. I mean, that's that's a trick to be able to pull that off. I think that's to his credit. I'm thinking about his scenes. not only the scenes where he's doing that, where he's speaking to Caesar, and you could you can see subtlety in his performance in how he's kind of looking for weakness and looking for an opening, and you know trying to see if he can manipulate Caesar in any way to change him. But again, like you know, like we've said, he does. He also considers himself to be the hero of the piece uh, that he's going to save apes from the humans. Yeah, but. Uh, also just a manipulation when he's talking to uh, Blue Eyes and he starts, you know, I, I'm afraid for your father because he's, you know, these humans are too much of a soft spot for him. Meanwhile, he's, you know, plotting his death at the same time. Right. Uh, you know, some of that. Or or even the scene with the, again, with the bumbling guards at the uh, at the armory. Yeah, that's right. Where, where he, he just plays them for fools by playing the fool. Right. And that's brilliant. I mean, that, that moment is terrific where... There's that moment where you wonder what he's gonna do, and he makes that calculation to shift into being a performing ape. Basically, I mean, it's it's the way it's played out, and that goes to Matt Reeves' staging, it goes to to Co- Toby Kibble's performance. It's terrific, you know. The tension, well, according the according to it. the uh, according to the the commentary by Matt Reeves, uh, that was pretty much Toby Kibble's doing. Yeah. you know, he he suggested that. That going that route, you know, they had some other ideas for how he was going to do. It. Oh, uh, I'm trying to remember now exactly what he had said. Uh, he he had they had it set up where he was going to grab the gun like a couple of minutes earlier. I see. I see. A couple of seconds earlier, actually, and that he said, "No, no, no. It would it will be much more effective if I do it this way." And and I think he was right. Yeah. And they they talked a little bit about how. Uh, how he's playing the role of the bully, right? Uh, you know how the bully, you know, pretends to be your friend and will kind of play the fool for a moment before he turns around and beat you up, uh, right. you know, and and that that's what he was playing on when he did that. And I just, it just again, it, it adds a depth and a, and a subtlety to the performance that you don't really catch if you're not watching it closely, right? And let's see, where else do we have here? Well, we have Michael Giacchino with the score. I can't yeah, which, say. I mean, you, I, honestly, uh, just uh, sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but I mean. No, that's all right. Please go. Uh, one thing you can say is that he clearly is a student of the the style of Apes orchestration because he brings a lot of this sort of studied atonal uh, uh, style of Leonard Rosenman and, and Jerry Goldsmith in. I mean, I, I, I could hear echoes of that. Uh, I don't know that the the score has the same sort of re-listenability uh, separate from the film, but certainly in the film, I think it it works. Yeah, I would I would tend to agree with that. It it did have uh, 
you know, it hit the high points when you wanted to. I didn't think it had the eeriness of the Jerry Goldsmith score. But yes, but well, I'm I not sure there were moments is, is really a, is a high bar. It's very hard to top that that uh, first film score. And that that first film score was so almost experimental in many ways. Yeah, as far as the different types of sounds that he made use of, and and it's shockingly uh, re-listenable. Oh yeah, absolutely. You could put that on in the car, and it's still <laughs> still fun my, to listen to, which is surprising. My eight-year-old the other day, my eight-year-old's like, "Can you put on the Hunt music from Planet of the Apes?" That's why I said I think you're raising these kids right. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, there was something like you know, it troubled me, but it, you know, it, it, the trouble I had with it made no sense. Uh, but the trouble I had when I was watching it a little bit was how easily once Koba eliminates Caesar from the picture, how easily the rest of the apes just follow along with him. But when you think about it, they are now a rudder, rudderless ship. Caesar has been eliminated from the picture. So my, my criticism or my uncomfortableness with that really is unwarranted. Yes. Uh, you know, he, he sets the fire, he gets everything, he gets kind of puts everything into motion. But... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure exactly at what point I felt that somebody should have said, hey, wait a minute, is this the right thing to do? But I think when you would have gotten that far, it was too late. Everything was already in motion. Yeah, and, and I mean, look at it from the perspective of the ape society, right? For them, they have two things that they know. Um, apes don't kill apes. Uh, and and uh, uh, Caesar trusts Koba. Right? So Caesar is shot. Koba says humans did it. They have no reason to think anything else. Yeah. That's it. Like I said, I, I had an uncomfortableness with it, but that's just because I'm seeing so much more than the ape community is. Yeah, because well, we have more knowledge than the characters. And then we eventually get, uh, is it Rocket's son that, that stands up to him? Yeah, That won't, Ash, that won't yeah. kill... Uh, and and then you know he pays the ultimate price for that. And and I think that that's the the moment even more so than shooting Caesar. That's the moment that marks Koba is completely irredeemable. Uh, you know, I, I, in in screenwriting terms, you have the save the cat moment. You know, to make a character uh, to show that a character has a heart of gold. That's that's the that's the kill. Named the cat after O.J. Simpson. <laughs> is is that from Towering Inferno with O.J. Simpson? Uh, I I believe so. It's it's uh. Oh man, I should look up the background on that. Actually, yeah, with the specific references, that would that would be what I would think it is because there's the scene in in Towering Inferno when he's checking the rooms, and you think this cat's going to go open the fire, and he goes opens the door, gets the cat, and leaves with it. I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up and see where I can find the the specific roots of that. Okay, but we'll 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 let that go to later. Yeah, uh, so yeah, I, I I agree with you that it's kind of the moment where he, you know, at the point of no return. There's no point where you could say anything that he does is justified anymore. Right, that's you know, exactly when, right. When he, when he un, you know, just un, un, uh, unremorsefully kills this kid with no need to do so. Yeah, and and specifically, he's saying this isn't what Caesar would have wanted, right? So in other words, he's, he's standing up for Caesar in a way Koba didn't or doesn't. And I think that's what makes it even more sort of hurtful, you know, what happens to him. 
and it's just a horrible moment. I mean, he's screaming and he's dragging. I mean, it's just it's you know if you have a pulse, you feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. The the only other thing before that, though, you know, when I said it, you know, you, these apes are willingly following him. The only other point where I would think that you know maybe they should have raised an eyebrow was the point when they were uh, imprisoning Maurice and the other loyal apes to Caesar. Right. You know, if if you were a true believer in Caesar's rule and his wisdom, at that point you'd have to say to yourself, "Hey, wait a minute, why are we?" Why are we locking up his most loyal advisors? Right. Yeah, but I, I, mean, I think it's just one of those things where once the wheels are in motion, the wheels of war, right? I mean, it's it's it it kind of goes to Caesar at the end of the film where he's like, "It's too late. We can't stop it. It's already started." Right. You know, and I think, and that's I think the tragedy of it. That's the, the yeah, that's the the essential tragedy of it. Absolutely. Now the the one. The one area of the movie where, I, you know, I always have to put something behind me where I say, yeah, I got to just kind of not think about this too much. The one area that I feel that with is how quickly it seems Caesar recovers from near death to the point where he can physically outdo, outdo Koba. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's it's sort of a necessary contrivance of the plot, which is why I guess it's it's okay to sort of look past it. I mean, obviously, if he took a shot like that and he fell however many feet, uh, one presumes he couldn't participate in in a you know a life or death throwdown. But you know, that's it's a can, uh, what would you call it? You know, just a, the the genre requires it, so we just kind of have to squint our eyes through it. Yeah, I think that's exactly the case. I think it's one of these one, you know, one of the things where you you say it, and then you say, "Okay, I'm going to just try and not think about that," and you move on. Right, right. Because you you did need to have your boss battle, and I don't think the script as designed allowed to say, "Okay, two months has gone by, so now he's fully recovered." Right. You know, too too much would would occur in that time in the war. Yeah, I mean, it, we assume it's been maybe a couple of days, right? Or a week at most? I mean, how, how, how long? Yeah, I, I don't see it being more than a week. Yeah. I, in fact, even a week, I feel like I'm stretching my uh, my timeline a little to get to that. Right. You know, because we're not, we're not dealing with two really, really large civilizations either. Right. The ape community and the human community. So, you know, over a co- the course of a week, the battle should be done. The, right. the, the casualties alone would would cause that, but again, it's like you said. I think I think you you put it on the nose when you said uh, you know just squint your eyes and just keep going. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, and then like we said, you know, Caesar finally uh, seizes control back from Coba, and that's when we get the tragic moment with him and Malcolm where. You know, he basically has to say goodbye. Cause oh, that's great. I, I, lo- I mean, when I think of this movie, I think of that shot. I think of the shot of Malcolm and Caesar putting their heads together. And, and you know, I, I when I talked to Matt Reeves uh, about the film, you know, he talked about how that's the moment. That's the moment where it could have been the planet of the apes and men. We were this mm-hmm. close. You know, we, we and I think that they even have the dialogue where it's like, we, you know, we almost made it, you know. Um, well... I, I think the way the movie is presented, you know, even if these 
you know, even if we didn't have the Gary Oldman character and Cobra and, and Car- Carver, somebody else was going to step up to kill the piece. Yeah, and... and it, it was inevitable. That's the, you know, and, and going back to, um, you know, the the ending of Battle for the Planet of the Apes, where we have that, that shot of the statue of Caesar that's crying. You know, the question is, 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 he, is it tears of joy because his dream has come true, or is it tears of sadness that his dream can never come true? And I'm, I'm enough of a cynic... And I'm enough of a fan of these films to say, well, it's sadness because because we know the, the the cycle of destruction can never end. You know, you might change the details here and there, but fundamentally, that's the the distrust and suspicion that people have is is too abiding. You know, and by the way, we don't need an ape civilization uh, to be in conflict with us to to have that borne out. I mean, just look at the news at any given day to see how human beings tend to look at other human beings. You know. Well, yeah, and that's that's the commentary on society that uh, I like to squint my eyes and look past. Yeah, it's very true, very true. Because <laughs> I like to think that, you know, I mean, I don't want to get too philosophical or, or you know, uh, you know, to get too far into it, but I like to think that, that somewhere along the lines we can find some sort of mutual ground for peace in, in the world and not have to constantly have everybody looking over their shoulders to worry about who's coming at them from either side of... The arguments. I mean, I I think, you know, taking a, a broader view of this franchise, you know, when Charlton Heston talks about man, that Marvel, the universe, who keeps his uh, uh, neighbor's children starving while he makes war against his brother. I mean, that's uh, that's this series, that's this franchise, and I I don't think you can get past that. And I think uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes is is ultimately a representation of that truism. Uh, that was true. That's true. Whether Rod Serling is writing it, or Pierre Boulle, or or Mark Bombeck and Matt Reeves, which is that uh, there is a cycle of destructive destruction. That no matter how good the good people are, uh, they are uh, passengers on the train rather than the people driving it. You know. Mm, that's true, and and it, but it, it goes back just to kind of go full circle to what we talked about earlier. Uh, how these movies in general, and uh, I would. I'll I'll leave the Tim Burton one out of the equation, but the seven other movies and soon to be eight, how they can present such depressing messages when you think about it, and yet have them be fun at the same time and family friendly at the same time, it it really is quite remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I walked out of this movie and there are so many nuances to it that, you know, we've discussed at least scratch the surface of some of them here. Uh, but I didn't walk out thinking about that. I didn't walk about out of the theater thinking about the inevitability of war. Uh, you know, I walked out feeling fairly good about Caesar's, you know, triumphant return to power <laughs> sure. as opposed to the inevitability of the downfall of the human race. Right. Yeah. So. And- and that's that's uh, I think something that all of these these new films have done very well um, is to sort of have the it, they're not explicitly about the downfall of the human race they, that is something that's happening in the background uh, as sort of wallpaper to this this foreground story which is about this person this ape who we know and love and we're watching him go through his struggles i think that's sort of the the gene it's 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 uh it's an end of the world story that makes you forget it's an end of the world story 
Yeah, exactly. And it, it, in many ways, has us rooting for the peop for the creatures, not the people, yeah. who are going to cause the uh, our inevitable downfall as far as how this movie is presented. Well, you know, and I, mean, and I think I, that's a trick in and of itself too. It, you know, there, there's uh, uh, Ricardo Montalban has that line where he says, you know, if it's man's destiny to be dominated, then please God let him be dominated by such as you. And he says that to. Cornelius and Zira, and you know, I, I can't help but think that when I look at the character of Caesar, uh, because I look at him and I say, "This is this is." I would gladly follow Caesar, you know. Yeah, well, in in this I, instance, in, in this in this particular movie, you know, I think it's it's natural human nature to feel a kinship and root for those who are more similar to us. Uh, that's right. you know, and sometimes that's the cause of all sorts of problems in the world. Uh, that's true. But here we're presented a movie with, where the human characters, with the exception of really one, are not presented in a bad light or a negative light at all. Right. Uh, even even Gary Oldman, his his position is perfectly defensible. Right. Uh, so the, the the humans aren't presented as the villains of the piece. But if you had to pick a side, you're still you're rooting for the apes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I, I, like I said, I think that's, 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 a, that's quite the trick. Yeah. Totally agree. So, uh, any, any other aspect of this that we're, that we're leaving on the table that, uh, we should talk about? I think, I think we, we, we covered a pretty wide gamut. I mean, the one thing I'd offer is that I think I, I wish that Gary Oldman had been more of a presence. I think I said this in our Rise of the Planet of the Apes conversation too, where I'm like, how are you going to have Brian Cox be in there and not have him be the primary bad guy and not, you know, this little wiener kid, uh, Draco Malfoy? Um, I feel mm -hmm. the I feel the same way with Gary Oldman, where uh, they they missed they missed an opportunity to to make him more of a presence. Uh, I, I'm, I, I'm trying to think of how you would do it st story structure wise you could create an amalgam of him and Carver and have him have more scenes yeah but I'm not sure that works I think I think if I really wanted to focus more on Gary Oldman I would be more inclined to say let me add another 10 minutes to this movie and flesh him out more yeah it, it, I and I don't think that would have been a bad thing uh, I also think though that the his his climactic moment there where he blows himself up kind of just comes out of nowhere like I I I think that we we needed some connective tissue to to make that decision that he makes feel more organic uh, from from the character development that he gets uh, uh, earlier in the film because we get the sense that he's desperate. I don't think we get the sense that he's a a villain per se. You know, I, I use the word villain purely out of lack of a and yeah and another easy descriptive maybe antagonist is a better but, word but, than villain. but i think you and i are on the same page right? i mean i i think he's yeah he's an antagonist for sure and i i think the opportunity was there to make him more of an analog to kobo which he's not really um no if anything i think carver is more of an analog to that's Kobo. right and and so so i think i think um I think it's, it, you know, how we were talking about, like, the, the power dynamic is so off between Caesar and Malcolm because Caesar is the leader, Malcolm is not. I think I think um, the opportunity was there to make, um, rather than having Koba uh, and, and Carver as analogs with each other, have uh, Dreyfus 
Gary Oldman's character be be more similar to Koba in that they each have the power to inflict harm on on the other group. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm. I'm thinking this out as you're saying it, and and I think I think you're onto something, because I think you could have had some scenes that mirrored the scenes where where Koba's trying to convince Caesar to to kind of be more aggressive against the humans. Yeah, you could have had scenes where Malcolm was trying to convince Dreyfus of just the opposite. Yeah, to stand down. Yeah, and and you know, and that could they could have mirrored each other, and that could have been a, a nice little dynamic there. I, I also feel like Dreyfus is somewhat absent during the, you know, when the apes take over, it, we, we kind of, we don't get as much. I, th- I think if we, even if we had a scene between Dreyfus and Koba, something to really dial up the hatred that Dreyfus feels that would make that, that the, you know, the setting off the bomb at the end not feel so out of the blue. I mean, that's what it, that was my thought. It just felt kind of like, whoa, wait, what? Did he just blow himself well, up? You know? I think the same, the same way, again, I'm, I'm just, I'm kind of fixated on this now because I hadn't really thought about it. <laughs> but uh, if we had those mirror scenes, you could have had, you know how we had Koba pointing out his scars to show how horrible the humans were? You could have had Dreyfus talking about how his family was killed, whatever, you know, whether it was through the virus or whatever else, but how he totally blames the simian community for that yeah and and you know his 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 actions would probably be a little bit less identifiable but i think they'd be more understandable yes yeah i agree and like i said and then you'd have a nice mirror with what was going on in the two camps i'm not sure you know i i don't consider myself enough of a screenwriter to think that they hadn't considered this so I'm thinking they probably thought about it, and there's some reason why they rejected that as yeah, an idea. Yeah, and, and and by the way, and and to to, to the to just to add on to what you're saying, it, it's certainly nothing that ruins the film or anything like that. I mean, we're we're talking about uh, really small fringe issues in in what is overall a very very solid film. Well, that's that's one of the things I get to on this show and back to the bins and listen to the prophets, all three of my shows. Uh, sometimes when you take the role of critic. You start breaking things down to the minute elements. And when you do that, you try to figure out, well, what would make it better? And I think if, you, if you're only listening on a very surface level, you're thinking, boy, he's being awful critical of this movie he likes. Right. Uh, but that's not, that's not the point. The point is to analyze it and break it down and see, you know, where is it really good? Where could it be better? Where, you know, you know what, what works and what doesn't? On a whole, I think this is an excellent movie. We're just talking about what could maybe, and I don't want to give my final rating away here, but what could take an excellent movie and turn it into a great one? You're right. That's that's how I see it. Yeah. So, I guess we're at that point, though, where uh, I ask you, Zachy, <laughs> is this Jaws? And as always, I'll give the Jaws scale because that's the demon I carry with me for making the show what it is. Uh <laughs> The Jaws scale is not my actual rankings of the Jaws movies, but just a uh, an, an, assi- an assigned uh, ranking system because only Jaws and Jaws four are actually true to their <laughs> true, true to their rankings. But uh, if you rank it as Jaws, you're saying it's an all-time great movie, nearly perfect, 
you know, very, very, very little that could be better. Uh, Jaws 2, very, very solid, worthy of, you know, rewatching, uh, but just not quite at the level of all-time classic. Jaws 3, watchable movie, enjoyable movie, but nothing particularly special. And Jaws 4 is a bad movie. Hmm. Where do you rank this? Uh, it's pretty close to, to Jaws in that um, I think it's it's very, very good and it's very rewatchable. Um, and and it uh, if we're talking about not the Jaws scale, but the Apes scale, uh, it's on <laughs> it's on the, the, the it's closer to the top end than the bottom end of that particular spectrum. Yeah, I'm pretty much in agreement with you. I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna rank this as Jaws two but I'm going to rank it as a high-end Jaws 2. There you go. Fair uh, enough. I'll, 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 uh, I'll co-sign that. i got to say, just from hearing your enthusiasm towards War for the Planet of the Apes, uh, I'm jazzed, and I can't wait to see it. And I can't wait to hear your thoughts on it. Well, that's, you know, before I, before I let us do any other projects, I'm going to get you back here to talk, uh, talk that movie with me. Oh, hell yeah. Just sign me up. So, uh... You know, next couple of weeks or so, I'll be in touch with you. To, you know, once I've seen it, I'll drop you a line, and we'll see when when our schedules line up. Yeah, that'd be great. You know, if you can get five five snoring kids in your house and go over <laughs> to a microphone. That's right. <laughs> but th- thanks again for coming on with me. I appreciate it, and uh, enjoy having our time to talk about these things. Uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you in case they don't already know? Oh yeah, well, uh, you can if if uh, uh, you're interested in hearing my podcast. It is the Movie Film Podcast. I also host a spinoff of that show called Nostalgia Theater. You can find both of those at iTunes if you just type in Movie Film Podcast. I'm also on Twitter at Zaki's Corner. That's Z A K I S Corner, and that's also my website, just Ada.com. You can also see my movie reviews at the Huffington Post, uh, as well as uh, my podcast at the Huffington Post. And I'm I'm all over the place. I'm on. Uh, uh, I'm on Fandor.com. Uh, I I don't know when you'll be posting this. I'm assuming shortly, but I have a piece up there uh, looking at the the cinematic history of uh, Spider-Man on screen. That's that's up at Fandor. That's a pretty good article that you can check out. Cool, very cool. And uh, I can speak from experience on the movie film post- podcast and Nostalgia Theater. Uh, they're must listens for me. I think they're great shows. Oh, thank you so much. Oh, and, and since we're talking about Planet Apes, we, my partner Brian Hall and I did a commentary track on the 2001 Tim Burton reimagining of Planet Apes. We just dropped that uh, last week, so I think uh, if you're listening to this episode in particular, you might enjoy uh, what I and Brian have to say about uh, about that particular film. And I'm going to chime in on that as well because I, I actually listened to that yesterday. And even if you're not a fan of the 2001 uh, Planet of the Apes, and realistically, who is? <laughs> Statistically, uh, uh, you're probably not a fan. <laughs> the the commentary is well worth listening to. It's not a, it's definitely not a a, a buff job of just hey, let's talk about this movie. There's there's a lot of insights there and a lot of just interesting commentary. So I, I would recommend it very highly. Well, thank you so much for saying that, Paul. I appreciate that. Well, it's, it's, I only say it because it's true. <laughs> so thanks again for coming on, and I'm looking forward to our next chance to talk. Likewise. Thanks meanwhile, so much. In the meanwhile, everybody, thanks for listening, and uh, we'll see you soon. I could use some iTunes reviews if anybody's interested. <laughs> thanks again. Bye.